everyone, and welcome back to The Right Turn, your one-stop shop for all things fiction writing. I'm your host, author Jordan M. Griffin, and today we're doing something a little bit different. So we're looking at editing in practicality. So what I've done today is I have a story that I have written. It's in its final draft, and what I thought we would do is we would go through, read the final draft, and then talk about how it went from first draft to final draft. And I can kind of bring you through everything that changed, everything that didn't change, and we could talk about what these edits look like in practicality. So this episode actually does have a visual component to it. Um, so you can check that out at YouTube if you're interested. If not, no worries. This will still be available as an audio only episode. And I will do my best to make sure that you're not going to miss out on anything. But if you are a visual learner and you like to see you know, color coding and anything like that, uh, I do recommend you check this out on the YouTube channel, The Right Turn. So today we're going to talk about practical editing featuring real stories written by me. And so we're going to go through, start with talking about what my editing process actually looks like. I know I've talked about it a bit in parts here and there, but I'm going to take you through it as well as how I approach editing because it is more of a philosophy than not. I know a lot of writers kind of have to get their head around editing and really learn to trust it and learn to enjoy the process. Then I will read you a short story once through. Um, it's pretty short. I think it's only four pages and I did that intentionally so we can really get into the editing part rather than the story itself. And then we will break that story down by paragraph comparing the first draft to the final draft, what changed, how it affected the story, my thoughts behind the changes when I was doing them. And then we'll do a final discussion of editing in writing, its place, how we go about it, things like that. So I use a draft model. I'm a draft writer, which means I tend to write a story completely through beginning to end and then look at that draft and decide what I want to change and what I want to keep the same and then do the next draft and then decide what I want to change, what I want to keep the same, so on and so forth. Not everyone writes like that. Um, I know some of my writer friends are line editors. And so they will they can spend two days on one sentence until it's perfect. It's exactly the way they want it. And then they move on from there. So those people, they take a lot longer to get through a first draft, but usually their first draft is pretty close to done. When I edit, my first draft is very easily the worst one and then it improves with subsequent drafts. So if you are a draft writer like me, then I propose what I call the one, two, three draft model. So draft one is pure creation. I don't really think about the nuts and bolts of writing. I don't think about my verbs. I don't think about my characters. I just think about what am I seeing in my head as I'm trying to get this story down? What do I want to happen? Even if it's a little cheesy, even if it's you know, maybe not what I want to put in the final draft, or even if I just need a placeholder, but I don't know what's going to be there yet, I will put it all in that first draft because the first draft is only to make it exist. I just need something on the page that I can then work with. So I write down everything that interests me. Even if I go on weird tangents or I put in lines that I then end up taking out because I think they're going to go somewhere, but they don't. Um, I have written stories where there's a whole 
vision sequence that a character sees a vision of the future that ended up completely changing because what I thought the vision was going to be in the first draft was not at all what ended up happening as I got to the end of the story. So I had to go back and change that. But draft one is pure creation. It is just put words on paper, see what comes out. When that's done, I then take it and I will print it out and reread it and I will mark it up with a pen. And for draft two, I'm really looking at plot. So what are the important events? What are the events that actually don't need to be there so much? Are my characters making the arcs that they need to make? Are the characters changing in ways that are compelling to the story? Um, I don't necessarily make line edits here, so I'm not really worried about sentences that sound clunky or all of my verbs. That's for the next part. Draft two is really plot, plot, plot. So by the end of draft two, I want to have a story that I can follow from beginning to end. I could make a plot summary and I could be really happy with it. Once I'm finished with that, I move into draft three. And draft three is where I focus on those line edits. So I'm really looking for sentences that are going to knock my socks off. I'm trying to really dig into either lyrical prose or emotional prose or whatever the story needs. I'm paying attention to my verbs. I'm paying attention to my character voice. Draft three is also where I'm going to be proofreading. So I'm going to make sure all my commas are in the right place. Everything that needs a capital is capitalized. I'm doing a spell check through draft three, and I'm doing a final look for readiness. So that's what my process kind of looks like. And now let me just state that not everything is done in three drafts. Some stories I could knock out in one, two, three drafts, and it's awesome. Some stories need four, five, six drafts. It just depends. Sometimes I can get stuck on draft one where it takes me a year to even get a draft one done because I just it's not coming. I can't make the words go. I can't figure out what I want from this story. Sometimes draft two takes the longest and I need two, three, four iterations before I know what I want my plot to be. So it just depends. Now, when I'm editing, I really want to focus on this idea of polishing, not perfection. No piece of writing will ever be perfect. It's not possible. And I'm sure those of us who've been writing for any period of time can go back and look at the things that we wrote a year, two years, five years, 10 years ago and see how different we were as people. And it's not that those pieces are any worse. They could be. I have pieces that are, you know, from my middle school days that show me how far I've come as a writer. But the things that we were really proud of at different points in our lives are things we can still be proud of. It's just we would write them differently now. So there's no such thing as a perfect story or a perfect book because who you are now writing this story is not going to be the same person who looks back on it in any length of time. So write as, you know, to polish, not to perfect. Every time we return to a piece of writing, I can improve it. So I even have published short stories that they're out there. They are in magazines and they are available for the public to read. And when I look at those, I still go, oh, I wouldn't write that like that now. Right? I find these lines that I would change or I find these pieces I would redo and that's okay. Part of that is just realizing that we're always learning and we are always improving. And so we would just do things a little bit differently as time goes on. Now, there is such a thing as over-editing. When you finish a story or when you're really digging into a story, it is possible to change it so much or to focus on all the tiny little things that 
it kind of gets away from you. I remember when I was writing my first manuscript, I had been working on this thing for so long and I didn't know what else needed to change that I started doing this really weird sentence structure where I would put a gerund in the front of the sentence. So an ing word, that's actually a noun. So instead of, you know, running as a verb, it would be running as a noun. So you could say the running was really bad or something like that. So I started doing this weird sentence structure and I put it throughout the whole novel. So when I finally put that manuscript down and I took a break from it and I looked back at it six months later, I went, what is this? And I had to go back and completely take out all of those things. So there is such a thing as over editing. And sometimes the white space, the breaks, the putting it down and just kind of thinking about it are what your brain needs. And as you edit, you'll find that the different ways that you engage in your story change the way that you understand it. So I really like when I'm editing to read it on hard paper. Um, so when I write a manuscript that's, you know, 73,000, 80,000, 90,000 words, I'll print it from my local print shop. That way I don't eat all of the ink in my printer. Um, but that way I can read it on a hard copy because the way that our brains process information on a computer and on a hard piece of paper are actually different. And for me, I really like working with hard paper and writing with a pen. Now, when that's not working, when I've read my manuscript so many times and I just don't know what to do anymore, sometimes it's nice to listen to it. This could either be reading it out loud to a trusted friend or to my pets or something like that, or it could be putting it in a text-to-speech and then playing it back to me, which is, sounds really weird, but I have found it's really helpful for finding clunky sentences, for finding places where you kind of like, ooh, that was not what I wanted. So listening to your story can actually really help as well. And lastly, with the editing process, is getting other eyes on a piece of paper. So beta readers, as we talked about last week, are essential, I think, for making sure a manuscript is everything that you want it to be. Now, that being said, there are some pros and cons of beta readers. So on the upside, right, a second opinion can definitely help verify your own writer's instincts. Are the parts you think are working actually working? Are the parts you think are clunky actually clunky? That can only be answered when you give it out to other people and get their feedback on it. I've gotten to the point now in my writing where I can usually identify the parts that aren't working. But sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes the part that I'm so frustrated with and I just want to give up and I don't think it's working, I give it to somebody and they go, wow, no, that's great. That's not a problem at all. So getting a second opinion can really help to, one, get out of your own head, but two, shape your authorial instincts, making sure that you are in tune with the writing the way that your readers are. Readers can also identify any confusing parts, and that's kind of the main thing that I use beta readers for. What is cringy? What isn't landing? What would do you wish you had never read, right? Those pieces, I really, those are important to me in my manuscripts. Readers can also boost confidence, which is a huge thing, right? It's so easy to get inside our own heads and to think that this is never going to be anything and it's never going to go anywhere. And when you give it to a friend and somebody who reads it and gets just as excited about those characters and about that setting as you do, 
it can be a really needed boost to get back into the world, back into the writing, to trust yourself again. So that's why beta readers are, I think, a really integral part of writing. And then, of course, trying to figure out, is the story that I wanted to write the story that actually came out on the page? Because sometimes when we're experimenting with giving characters certain movements, certain patterns of speech, especially if they are not necessarily the way that I talk, it can come across completely differently. So I remember I was giving a, uh, I was in workshop, which is where we, um, a bunch of writers will sit in a room and they will all go over the manuscripts that were submitted. And so it was my turn. We're going over my manuscript and I was figuring out this character that I wasn't quite sure about. And so, you know, the circle's going around and everybody's inputting how they felt about it. And the leader of the workshop, who is a very close friend, good mentor of mine, looked at me and said, your character is annoying. I, I don't like him. I cannot imagine reading an entire book with this character. And I'm, at the time, that was crushing. And I didn't understand. I didn't get it. And so I left that workshop just kind of feeling like, oh, maybe I'll never write again, or at least not this character. And the more that I looked at it, the more that I tried to figure out, okay, where is this mentor getting that vibe? Why is this character annoying? The more that I realized, oh, I see. I see where it's coming from. I see what she's saying. And so I circled those parts and then tweaked those specific parts. And so it turned into a much stronger character. And so even those hard discussions, those you know, those conversations that make you never want to pick up a pen again actually end up being some of the most important pieces of information that shape the characters later on. Now, that's not to say that beta readers are all good all the time, right? There are definitely downsides. One is having someone read your work way too early. So if you don't know where you want your story to go, the last thing you should do is put it in front of somebody. If you don't know where your story needs to go and you want some help with it, there is nothing wrong with that. What I would do then is give them a very truncated explanation of what your story is and what's going on and then bounce ideas. Ideas are great, but putting an entire story in front of somebody and saying, I don't know where this is going, that's really difficult because they are going to either give you so many different ideas that you're going to have a hard time figuring out what you want to do. Or they are going to take your story in a completely different direction than you actually want to go. So too many opinions too early can really throw writers off. And it can be hard to recover from that. Um, it can also be discouraging, honestly. If you know something's a first draft and you put it in front of somebody and they go, yeah, I hated it. Well, it's a first draft. It's There's issues with it. Everybody knows that. But it can still be really discouraging to not get the feedback that you're looking for. So I would definitely wait unless you have somebody who's very close to you that you trust a whole lot. I would wait until at least draft two before I put it in front of somebody. Um, readers don't always give helpful feedback. And we talk a lot about that in the last episode. So if you haven't listened to the beta reader episode, I highly encourage you to go do that. But yeah, sometimes that feedback just isn't helpful. And either they're looking at the wrong thing or they got caught up in something or the book's just not for them, which is totally fine. I mean, how often have you read either a classic or something that everybody else really loved and you look at it and you go, 
nah, it's not for me. That's okay. That happens. What's important to know then is that they may not be the beta reader for you. They may not be the person who you take all their opinions and you do everything they say, right? So be aware of that. Um, another downside of beta readers is when they're right, but it's a huge edit. This happened to me uh, in my third semester of my MFA. My advisor was kind enough to look at all 260 something pages of a manuscript that I was working through. And I was telling him, um, I was really excited about it. I, you know, I thought I knew where it was going. I had a pretty good handle on it. And he read it and he comes back and he says, well, you have no through line. And I said, I don't know what that means. What are you talking about? And he says, well, there's nothing for your character to want. They're just kind of moving through all of these scenes and they're reacting to what you're you're putting in front of them, which is fine. But I don't know what your character wants. And the more that I read it, the more that I went, oh, no, he's right. And so that is an entire – that's a rewrite. That is going back and every single scene, every single sentence almost – trying to figure out what this character wants. And it ended up being for the best. I think I know where I want that book to go now. I think I know how I want it to exist. But it took me about a year. And so, you know, in essence, that instructor, that advisor, as much as I love that advice, knocked me out of writing that manuscript for a year. And then um, different readers can have wildly differing opinions. And so that's just something that we have to learn to kind of figure out and say, okay, whose opinion do I trust? Whose opinion do I weigh more heavily than others? And that's just something that you have to assess for yourself and for your own writing. Okay, so this is the part where we are going to do a read through. So um, I have a short story here. And it, like I said, it's about four pages. It's pretty quick. It's going to take us about eight to 10 minutes to get through. So what I want you to be thinking about is this is a final draft. So this is not the first draft. This is not the second draft. This is a final draft. This is a draft that I have submitted to magazines. I'm willing to put in front of people. So I don't want anybody to think this is just what comes out of my fingers whenever I sit down at a computer. That being said, it's totally okay to think, okay, how would I improve this? What are the pieces that still feel like they're not quite there? What are the pieces that are great and that we should definitely keep as we move through? So this is called Coma Berenices. I met Zoe in August, a month that couldn't make up its mind what it wanted to be. She swept into our dorm with a single box in hand, eight-inch records she had no way to play. When I asked about them, she grinned and said she'd spin them on her fingers if she had to. I told my friends about her, and they warned me not to trust girls who tried others on like jewelry. Though I tried to heed their warnings, against Zoe, I was helpless. She pulled me in like no one I'd known, and I couldn't resist the way she looked at me with the deepest eyes, eyes that had seen empires rise and fall and had watched the stars when they danced across the universe for the first time. I must have pined after her far more obviously than I'd like to remember, but she treated me as nothing more than a friend. At first, I tried to accept her terms. I even went out for ice cream invited by a boy from the frat across the street with soft hands and a voice like guitar strings. But he wasn't Zoe, and soon enough I convinced myself I could wait for her on my own. 
When she brought other girls to the room and wasn't shy about the way she held them, admitting them to a part of herself it seemed no one else could know, I wished I'd never met her. I hated those girls for a long time. I fell hard for her in October. We went for a walk together, so late into the night that time had no meaning anymore. Zoe had broken it off with her latest girlfriend and was more upset than I'd seen her in a while. As we walked, she'd stop abruptly on the sidewalk and lean down to press her palms into the heat left over in the concrete. She liked summer best, she'd say, and smile a little bit, and I'd smile too. We wandered toward the quad, the part of campus that had a large expanse of green, and where, on lucky nights, we could lie down and name the constellations that were not chased away by the city lights. The grass was wet when Zoe lowered herself onto it. She laughed but sank down anyway. I didn't want to get my shirt damp, didn't want to feel it stick to my back and seep cold through my skin, but Zoe looked up at me and reached out a hand, and there was no other choice then. I took her offering and tried not to notice when the dew leached through my thin running shorts. There were no stars out when we kissed for the first time. Our first fight didn't happen until December. I had begun to feel like something more than just another of Zoe's passing interests had almost let myself become safe in the twin bed we shared in her room. Safe enough, anyway, to ask her to come home with me for the upcoming break, to meet my family and introduce herself to someone I could, unquestionably, undeniably, call my own. I knew by the way the conversation stopped, dead, murdered, that I had crossed some line. One I couldn't see and hadn't known existed in the first place, but nonetheless I crossed it and therefore the blame lied with me. When the fight happened, pulled out of us in fits and starts, it was about Zoe's socks that had existed in a neglected pile since we'd moved in, and my dishes that always ended up in the sink and not in the dishwasher. We said nothing of commitment, of families, of whether we still saw ourselves holding each other in six months' time. Two weeks after I'd cut myself on a plate Zoe smashed against the counter, and she'd climbed out the living room window to circumvent my blockade of the door, she returned to the dorm. I walked in. She walked in, her jaw hard and her eyes made of flint chips. Behind her, she towed a girl I didn't know, full of curves I didn't have and hair shaved like I was still too afraid to do, and a smile that said she didn't care that I was there, watching. They shut her door and didn't come out until breakfast the next morning. I took her back after the new year. I don't know why I did. Her sorry was pitiful. Her lips pursed when she said the words, and her eyes slid away from me even as she begged my forgiveness. But she asked, and so I said yes. She lit up and kissed me hard, like she meant it, like I could really save her from whatever she was drowning in. I let myself believe in the web she spun before me, let myself get caught in the silken fibers and found myself, for a time, content enough to lie there. Just before spring midterms, I found an earring on the floor of my room. I hadn't stepped there for months, concerned instead with the feel of Zoe's sheets, the way her clothes looked when they hung beside mine. The thin loop of metal on my carpet didn't belong to me, and I'd never seen it in Zoe's collection either. At first, Zoe pretended to be angry. She called me names I hadn't heard of, threw a picture frame of us into the living room wall. When that didn't work, she cried, wet cascades spilling black rivers down her cheeks. I had never seen Zoe like that, and the very idea of it was so terrifying, I considered burying the hoop and forgetting it existed. Lucky for me, the girl it belonged to came looking for it, and Zoe had nowhere to hide then. When I told my friends, they questioned why I'd stayed with her this long, why I put up with Zoe's moods, why I took her back even when they told me not to. 
everyone knew about Zoe, they said, you could have saved yourself a lot of trouble. I wondered why none of them had bothered to shake me out of pretending she would change, that she could change. There was a moment on the anniversary of the night I learned the taste of Zoe's lips that I very nearly wished to have her back. The fighting, the girls, all of it seemed so small in the wake of the devastating singularity that now existed where she used to be. I went for a walk to clear my head, and in a fit of weakness, my feet carried me back to that grassy quad. This time, though, I didn't sit. I let my tennis shoes soak up the midnight condensation. With a gentle wind blowing, a caress from the summer night, I looked into the sky and saw the stars shining, for once, brighter than the city lights. Okay, so that's the story. So now let's look at what changed between the first and final drafts. So what I have here is the first draft is going to be on the left side and the final draft, the one we just read, is going to be on the right side. Now, I didn't read through the first draft because I don't think it's as helpful to read a whole first draft and then a whole final draft and try to keep track of what changed. Instead, I'm going to go through these changes one by one. So the first bit, you can see the order changes. Zoe and I met in August. That's how it first started. That's the first line that I ever wrote for this story. On the final draft, though, it changes. I met Zoe in August. So there, there is more agency. And this is one theme that you'll see throughout the edits is that the narrator, this I person who's never named, um, she becomes much more present in the story. Less of a this happened to her and more of this, you know, she kind of took her life apart piece by piece and was totally fine with it. So the second sentence I remember because it was a month that couldn't make up its mind what it wanted to be, just like us. That's the first draft. A little clunky, I thought, when I wrote it. A little clunky, just like us. That part, it's it's a little, don't explain your metaphor, right? That's a piece of advice I heard all the time. There's no need to explain your metaphor. So in the final draft, that's exactly what happened. I dropped the just like us. It became, I met Zoe in August, a month that couldn't make up its mind what it wanted to be. And I liked that. I liked keeping the metaphor um, because August for us here where I live in California, it is a hot month and then it gets real cold sometimes. So some years, August is 113 the entire time. Some months, August is weirdly 75, 80. So that's where that metaphor came from. Then in the first draft, I have this entire sentence. Here I have it outlined in red. And a reminder, if you want the visual component, I will link the YouTube video in the description of this podcast episode so you can see uh, what I have here. So I have this entire piece that gets taken out. So here's what gets taken out. Lost in the dance we wove around each other, we shifted like the clouds in the sky. One moment I smiled at Zoe over vegan ice cream, and the next I stood at Casey Tannerman's party realizing the lipstick on her mouth hadn't been there when she left our dorm. So there's a lot to break down there. There's a lot that I was trying to pack in, and I can tell that I am explaining things to myself as I'm writing this sentence. So Zoe's vegan right? That there's the vegan ice cream. Casey Tannerman is a now named character. And then Zoe has lipstick on her mouth that hadn't been there when she left the dorm. So that implies something might have been going on with someone else at this party. 
Well, I noticed as I was moving through the draft, as I got to the end, this party never comes back up. No one talks about Casey Tannerman. No one talks about anything that might have happened there. So having this really specific sentence actually doesn't help the story because it draws the reader's attention to something that I just never bring up again. In a different story, maybe that would be a really cool place to go. But for this specific story, that wasn't what I was going for. Instead, I needed to introduce Zoe in a way that kind of captured what the narrator was seeing in this person and why she was kind of so different than anybody she had known. So what we get in the final draft is instead of any party, instead of anything like that, we get this sentence. She swept into our dorm room with a single box in hand, eight inch records she had no way to play. When I asked about them, she grinned and said she'd spin them on her fingers if she had to. So that tells us a lot more about Zoe than that whole sentence that I took out, right? Because, okay, she listens to old records, but she doesn't have a way to play them. So this kind of hints at Zoe's uh, very opportunistic nature that she'll take advantage of people, right? And she doesn't mind using other parts of people or, or you know, finding what she needs in other people. She That's kind of her defining character trait. So she has this box of records, but no way to play them. And then she has a super charming way of deflecting that, deflecting the main issue, which is essentially what the problem with the relationship between the narrator and Zoe is, right? What it ends up being. So I like uh, the final draft much better because it it keeps on theme. Right, The sentence in the original draft doesn't necessarily keep on theme. So, oops, sorry. So then we have this sentence in the first draft. Actually, I'm just going to read the whole paragraph. So in the first draft, we have this paragraph. Of course, I should have known what I was falling into was dangerous. I knew not to trust girls who made habits of using the people around them like jewelry. Girls who like to try others on before discarding them in the back of a drawer. But Zoe pulled me in like no one I'd known, and I couldn't resist the way she looked at me with the deepest eyes, eyes that had seen empires rise and fall and had watched the stars when they danced across the sky for the first time. So there's, again, it's one. It's a really dense paragraph. One of the themes that you will see in this editing process is that everything gets cut back. Anything that's not necessary just gets ripped out of the story. And I would rather that because when we get to this metaphor about jewelry, right, when we get to this metaphor about not trusting people who tried others on, that goes a little bit too long. So girls who like to try others on before discarding them in the back of a drawer, that part gets cut um, because it's enough. It's enough just to say don't trust people who try others on for size, right? We don't need any more than that. It also is a little bit too uh, aware. So in the first draft, the narrator was very aware that what she was getting into with Zoe was bad and was not going to be healthy for her. But that doesn't make sense. Why would you do it then? If you know it's a bad and you know, you know, you shouldn't be doing this, why would you do it? And people do things that are bad for them all the time. So of course, there's always the there's an explanation for it. But I think the final draft is where we really see why it's happening. Um, and I think that is what, what the changes really come down to is does it do a better job of explaining what is happening here? So in the final draft here in this first line, we get the introduction of friends. 
I told my friends about her and they warned me not to trust girls who tried others on like jewelry. So this again brings agency back into the narrator. So in the first draft, the narrator doesn't have the agency. She knows it's bad, but she does it anyway, right? In the, the final draft, the friends are warning her. So she fully is aware. She has people telling her not to do it. And it's her choice now. So it is moving the choice of the narrator into the forefront of the story. That way, um, the arc of the character getting over Zoe at the end becomes much more drastic because the narrator essentially needs to heal whatever it is inside of herself that is listening to this very alluring woman over her own friends. So then uh, the the green here at the bottom is the last sentence. You can notice the last sentence doesn't change at all, right? She looked at me with the deepest eyes, eyes that had seen empires rise and fall and had watched the stars when they danced across the universe for the first time. I wrote that line and I was like, that's it. The story's done. There it is. <laughs> that is really the crux of this story is that Zoe is such a intriguing character so the this line implies that zoe is a lot older than you know she first seems so it's kind of evoking this vampire-esque romance this is not a supernatural story even a little bit zoe is a person she's you know 22 in college but the line here is kind of giving this weight to zoe this uh gravitational pull and that is what the narrator is intrigued in what the narrator cannot escape is this kind of zoe knows everything zoe has done everything zoe has done things that she can't do and uh, that is really what the narrator can't let go so that's why this stays the same all right next a little bit so uh after that i have a line in the first draft that i cut completely so the line is we tiptoed around each other for two months and the reason that I cut that completely is I don't need it, right? Because I have another timestamp where it's, I fell for her in October. So we go from August to October. So I don't need this two months. I don't need to tell the reader every single little thing. So I don't need that line. Cut it. It's not doing anything. The next line is the same. I must have pined after her far more obviously than I'd like to remember, but she treated me as nothing more than a friend. That doesn't change. So what changes is in the first draft, it is very, again, I'm explaining things to myself. So these are not the prettiest sentences. They're not uh, getting into deeper character that the final draft does. So in the first draft, it says, she treated me as nothing more than a very, very close friend. Zoe left just enough room to allow me to wonder, was just affectionate enough to let me think maybe. So again, the onus is on Zoe in this draft, right? Zoe is the one doing the thing. Zoe is the one that's not moving. Zoe is the one that is kind of keeping her there. But that's not fair. That's not fair to the narrator who has much more agency in this, right? That is the narrator avoiding responsibility. Uh, and that could be a really interesting way to go, but it doesn't line up with the method of telling because in this story the narrator is essentially looking back on something she's not living through it moment to moment so i need her to be a bit more aware than um than it would be if she were just like drowning in it right so that's why this gets cut 
Instead, in the final draft, we have her going on a date with a different boy. So at first, I tried to accept her terms. I even went out for ice cream, invited by a boy from the frat across the street with soft hands and a voice like guitar strings. But he wasn't Zoe, and soon enough, I convinced myself I could wait for her on my own. So again, bringing that responsibility into the narrator. The narrator is making the choice. She has other options. She can go out with this frat boy who actually seems really nice, right? He took her out for ice cream. It, they didn't have a bad time, but he's not Zoe. And that's what it keeps coming back to. So that is why this sentence changes is, to, again, to bring that narrator into the forefront to make her responsible for the choices that she decided on. Uh, the next sentence is the same, pretty much. She brought other girls to the room, though, and wasn't shy about the way she held them. And then here's where it changes. Here's the first draft. Wrapping her whole world around them like they were the sweetest treat she could lay her mouth on. I just hated that from the beginning. Maybe it's a good sentence. I just did not. It didn't fit. I didn't like it. Uh, it's a little too sweet. Zoe isn't sweet. Uh, that's one thing you may have noticed about her. Instead, I changed it in the final draft to when she brought other girls to the room and wasn't shy about the way she held them, admitting them to a part of herself it seemed no one else could know. I wished I'd never met her. So that really uh, engages the mysterious part of Zoe much more, and it brings in a very interesting piece of conflict. I wished I'd never met her. So the narrator, who is so frustrated by her own sexuality, right? She can't ask Zoe out. She doesn't know how to go about this. Zoe's bringing other girls to the room, and the narrator doesn't know what to do about that. She wishes she'd never met Zoe. So it's this push away of anything that she doesn't quite know how to handle. So again, bringing the narrator much more into the story, especially in a first person point of view, that is critical. The audience has to understand where the narrator is coming from. So then the last line, I hated them for a long time until I became one myself. That's the first draft. Second draft, I hated those girls for a long time. Okay, so you see I cut until I became one myself, right? I don't need it anymore because the rest of the story is going to explain how the narrator became one of those girls. So I don't need this telling the audience. In fact, it's actually detrimental to the story because the audience already knows that. So it's another line that is not doing what it should be doing. All right, next we have this I fell hard for her in October paragraph. So that's why we didn't need the two months later, right? We have this timestamp here. So most of this is actually the same, most of this first paragraph. I fell hard for her in October. We went for a walk together so late into the night that time had no meaning anymore. Here's where it changes. Zoe had just broken it off with her latest girlfriend, if such a fleeting relationship could be called such, and was more upset than I'd seen her in a long time. That's the first draft. So this little phrase here, if such a fleeting relationship could be called such, gets cut. Mostly because it, it does tell us something. It tells us that Zoe kind of has these on again, off again, or these very brief flashes of relationships. That is important to the character, but it wasn't what I needed the narrator to be fixated on right then. It was a little too bitter for that moment. And there are these bitter moments that come in because, again, the narrator is telling this story from a later point of view, but it is a, a 
line that I need to thread because I want the narrator to have the right amount of awareness because this is later, but not be so aware and judgmental that it makes the reader question where she is telling the story and what her bias is telling the story. So that's why this gets cut here. It's not quite the right tone for what this paragraph needs to be because this paragraph is when the narrator really falls for Zoe. It even says, I fell hard for her in October, right? So when the narrator allows herself to finally jump to not listen to everything her friends say, not listen to any reservations she might have about dating someone like Zoe and just jump, go for it. So there is a, that's a magical feeling to enter into a relationship for the first time. So I needed to preserve that magical feeling. And that's why this, if a fleeting relationship could be called such, gets cut. It's a little too cynical for that. So then uh, everything is the same after that. So I'll read. As we walked, she'd stop abruptly on the sidewalk and lean down to press her palms into the heat left over in the concrete. She liked summer best, she'd say, and smile a little bit, and I'd smile too. We wandered toward the quad, the part of campus that had a large expanse of green and where, on lucky nights, we could lie down and name the constellations that were not chased away by the city lights. So all that is the same from first to final draft. That doesn't change. That's capturing that magical feeling I was talking about. It's calling back to stars. You'll notice that stars are a big motif in this work. Um, and even the title of it, Coma Berenices, is the name of a constellation. So that is um, something that keeps kind of coming back because stars are ethereal and untouchable. And if you could have the chance to hold one in your hand, I think a lot of people would say yes before thinking about that wouldn't work and it would burn everything around you. And that's what this story really is about. So then we get the next sentence, which is essentially the same, but the cadence changes. So if you're ever wondering when I say you know, from draft two to three, I'm cleaning up sentences. I'm listening for prose. This is a good example of that. So in the first draft, it's all one sentence. The grass was wet when Zoe lowered herself onto it and she laughed about it, but sank down anyway. That's all one sentence. In the final draft, it gets broken into two. The grass was wet when Zoe lowered herself onto it. She laughed, but sank down anyway. It's a very subtle change. And uh, this is something that we call author discretion, meaning it's not wrong either way. If I left it with the and, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But essentially, because the sentence before is pretty long and the sentence that comes after is pretty long, and I really liked those long sentences, I needed a break in the middle uh, just to give the reader time, basically, just to give the reader a breath to absorb everything that they were reading. So this gets broken into two. Uh, it also, oops, it also isolates Zoe laughing and sinking down. So Zoe kind of likes the getting her clothes and skin wet on that damp grass and the narrator doesn't. So it's highlighting a difference between them. So then we have I didn't want to get my shirt damp, didn't want to feel it stick to my back and seep cold through my skin, but Zoe looked up at me and, here's where it changes, reached out a long-fingered hand and there was no other choice then. So in the first draft, I have this long-fingered modifier and I take it out. It 
it's okay, but it just it makes it sound kind of alien when when I wrote read it over. Uh, it makes Zoe sound like she has these super long fingers, um, and it just it wasn't the right place for a detail like that. So take it out. Then next sentence, I took her offering and let her lead me down and tried not to notice when the dew leached through my thin running shorts. So you'll notice in this first draft, I have this let her lead me down. And again, it goes back to the narrator is not taking responsibility for this moment. She's saying Zoe is doing it. Zoe is leading me down. Not necessarily. Zoe reaches out a hand and the narrator takes it. And we could frame it with all of this really flowery prose, which is what the narrator does, right? She says there was no other choice then. I took her offering and tried not to notice when the dew leached through my thin running shorts. For all she can say there was no other choice then, there is. There's always a choice because this is a person who has agency, who is in a position where she could walk away if she wanted to. And that is the crux of the story. She can walk away and she's not. So that's why this let her lead me down gets taken out because it's not doing what I need. Uh, it's not placing the conflict where I need the conflict. Um, in the first draft, you can see that a lot of the conflict was coming from this anger at Zoe. And the more that I sat with it, the more that I realized the narrator is angry at herself. She is angry that she fell for this. She's angry that she let it get so far. So the anger was misplaced in the first draft. And, you know, you see it over and over again, right? Every place where the anger is at Zoe, it gets redirected in the final draft so that the anger is at the narrator herself. And then we have this um, sentence that doesn't change. So there were no stars out when we kissed for the first time. And the reason I highlighted it in green here is because that sentence, again, goes back to this idea of stars. So the stars are covered when uh, she first engages with Zoe, when she first enters into this relationship. Um, and that is mirrored when at the end, when she finally is just by herself and has gotten through this relationship, uh, the stars are shining brighter than the city lights. So it's a kind of a moment of clarity, right? Right now there are no stars out. It's either cloudy or the city lights are just obscuring them. So that's a thematic line. Okay. This one is long. So we'll go through it bit by bit. So this happens just after their first fight. I didn't include the paragraph of the actual fight um, because it's exactly the same. The one where it's about the socks and the dishes and we said nothing of commitment of families of whether we saw ourselves holding each other in six months time. So I kept to this line, and this kind of goes against what I was saying of don't explain your metaphor. Well, in this case, it's important. That metaphor needs to be there because the reader needs some clarity about whether the narrator knows what she's doing and what is happening or whether the narrator doesn't know. So I can't leave it ambiguous right there. It's not helping the story for me to leave that out. So leaving this in, we said nothing of commitment of families of whether we saw ourselves holding each other in six months time. It is important that the reader understand that the narrator knows that's what the fight's about and they're not saying it. They are fighting about socks instead. Um, 
so that way we do see that the narrator is aware we can trust her um, that is important for the audience trust of the narrator okay after that it gets pretty different so in the first draft the next two sentences go as follows for a week we did little more than look at each other from across the room Two days after the argument, after we'd screamed at each other and I'd cut myself on a plate Zoe had smashed against the counter and she'd decided to spend a few days with her friends, she returned to the dorm. So that's version number one. There's a couple things about that version that I, the timeline was a bit off. For one, it drags out a little bit. Um, it kind of drags what doesn't need to be so long. And then two, it... I, I couldn't see the narrator just letting Zoe go at this point. Um, she's so infatuated with Zoe. She knows Zoe has had all of these really tumultuous relationships. She's watched those relationships. She's hated watching those relationships. So I couldn't see the narrator just kind of letting that fight happen and then not doing anything about it. Again, going back to the narrator needs to take more of a stand. So in the final draft, we get this. Two weeks after I'd cut myself on a plate, Zoe smashed against the counter, and she'd climbed out the living room window to circumvent my blockade of the door, she returned to the dorm. So this paints the picture of a much scarier fight, uh, as well as a much more intense argument. So if you have a fight where afterwards you're just not talking to each other, that is different than plates getting smashed and someone blocking the door and somebody else climbing out a window. There's a lot going on there. And so it's uh, creating the chaos that the narrator lived through. Um, as I kind of dug into the story, I realized or kind of started to lean into how chaotic this relationship really got. And so that also makes the next line make a lot more sense. So the next line is the same for both drafts. Um, she walked in, her jaw hard and her eyes made of flint chips. Behind her, she towed a girl I didn't know, full of curves I didn't have and hair shaved like I was still too afraid to do and a smile that shit said she didn't care that I was there watching. So in the first draft where the argument is just them yelling at each other and then they don't talk and then Zoe leaves right? That is, that makes her betrayal a lot harder to swallow for the narrator because it's just a fight at that point. Um, there is this Zoe smashes a plate against the counter in the first draft. Um, so there is that moment, but it's not escalated to the same place that it is. In the final draft, the fight is so intense and so bad. Zoe climbs out of a window and then comes back with another girl. So it is uh, the emotions are much higher, and that is why the infidelity becomes almost forgivable. It's not at all. It's not forgivable. It's not okay. It's not meant to be okay. But it makes more sense why the narrator would justify it to herself than in the first draft. Okay, so then is the same. They shut the, her door and didn't come out until breakfast the next morning. I took her back after the new year. And then here's another cadence change. So it's not that the words change at all. It's just the cadence. So in one, the cadence goes as follows. This is how I first wrote it. I don't know why I did. Her sorry was pitiful and her lips pursed when she said the words and her eyes slid away from me even as she begged my forgiveness. But she asked and so I said yes. 
It's all one sentence. There's I don't know why I did is short. And then there's her sorry was pitiful and her lips for all of that is then one sentence. And it just felt uh, a little too rushed. I needed the moment to be a little bit slower. So this is pacing. This is a good example of pacing. I needed the moment to be slower. So in the final draft, it's I don't know why I did semicolon. Her sorry was pitiful. So it links those two ideas, right? I don't know why I'm taking her back because her sorry was pitiful. I don't need to say the word because, but it's linking those two ideas, which is important because the narrator realizes this is a terrible idea. This is bad. I shouldn't be doing this, but she's going to do it anyway. So then the next sentence becomes her lips pursed when she said the words and her eyes slid away from me even as she begged my forgiveness. All one. So it's only an image. Next sentence. But she asked and so I said yes. And that's the crux of it, right? That's what it is. The narrator still can't get away from she will do what Zoe asks her to do just because she wants to be with Zoe. And so I needed to isolate that. I needed that to be an idea on its own. And so that's where sentence structure tells the reader what are independent ideas and what are ideas that are linked to each other. And so this is where when I say line edits, this is an example of a line edit because it actually changes the way we understand the sentence and it changes what is important in the sentence. So the next line is the same. She lit up and kissed me hard like she meant it, like I could really save her from whatever she was drowning in. I let myself believe in the web she spun before me. Okay, here's where it changes. First draft. I let myself get caught in the silken fibers and found myself, for a time, content enough to lie there awaiting her venomous embrace. It's good. It's almost there, but it's a little bit too much. Again, that that anger starts to come in, right? Her venomous embrace. That anger is for later um, or even it's an unspoken anger, right? It's the wrong place for the anger. So that gets cut, venomous embrace. In the final draft, it's just, I let myself get caught in the silken fibers and found myself for a time content enough to lie there. And that's it. So we can see the narrator is just all of the verbs are pleasant verbs, right? It, it, they are the silken fibers and she's content. It brings to mind like a hammock. She's laying there instead of the venomous embrace, which gives it this edge. So took, taking out the edge. Okay, next bit. So in the first draft, the next sentence goes, things crash down again in April. I, it, I liked it. it the timestamp is important. We need to know what's happening. But I had used three months at that point, right? October, uh, sorry, August, October, December, April. So too many months. I changed it so it says just before spring midterms. So that way we know where we are. Spring midterms usually happen either in March or April, depending on if you're on semesters or quarters. But that way we have a timeline, but we don't know, we don't have to say the month again. Okay, then things get a little bit different. So first draft, I found an earring on the floor of my room, the room I had barely even glanced at in months. The thin loop of metal wasn't mine and I'd never seen it in Zoe's collection either. So the detail there is the room I had barely even glanced at in months. It's good. It's not quite there. I need to explain just how wrapped up in Zoe the narrator is. So it changes to, I hadn't stepped there for months, concerned instead with the feel of Zoe's sheets, the way her clothes looked when they hung beside mine. 
So that shows kind of how much they have pseudo moved in with each other. They're in the same dorm room, but the narrator is not, uh, her clothes aren't in her dorm room, right? They are hanging up in Zoe's closet. So they've moved so that they can uh, share the space, which again shows you how unhealthy this relationship is because those dorms are tiny. There's no room for two people. So then we have, at first, Zoe pretended to be angry. That's the same. And that's a telling sentence and it's a good telling sentence because it's now showing that the narrator is coming around to understanding Zoe and that Zoe isn't necessarily as honest as she seems. So her pretending to be angry is important for the narrator to know. In the first draft, it says, screamed herself hoarse, threw a picture frame of us into the living room wall. That's good. Not quite there. In the final draft, I changed it to, she called me names I hadn't heard of. So this implies now that, um, again, Zoe is that more experienced, older, been around the block type of character. So this is, again, an homage to that, but now it is not romanticized. It is not this vampires rose and fall in her eyes. It is, I'm being called things I don't even know what they mean, but I know that by the way she's saying them, they're not good. So it is, again, exaggerating the difference between the narrator and Zoe in their experiences, um, but now it is a negative. So we're starting to turn the arc. We're starting to go on to over the crest of the arc and the narrator is becoming who she is at the end of the story. So then the next part is the same and I'll jump to after they break up. We have this. When I told my friends, they scoffed at me and questioned why I'd even stayed with her this long, why I put up with Zoe's moods, why I took her back after she'd so blatantly flaunted her comfort with infidelity. Everyone knew about Zoe, they said. You could have saved yourself a lot of trouble. It's mostly the same, but it's the after she'd so blatantly flaunted her comfort with infidelity. It's a little too much, a little too in the face. I needed it a little bit more subtle for the tone. So what I changed it to is why I put up with Zoe's moods, why I took her back even when they told me not to. So we're bringing in the friends again. We are implying that the narrator has talked to her friends about what happened and they, rightfully so, said, girl, get out of there. Don't know what you're doing. And now that it has ended, she's coming back to her friends. And this is a struggle that anybody who's been in a relationship that they should have gotten out of sooner, whether that be um, abusive or otherwise, or just a relationship that they couldn't leave for whatever reason, know that sometimes your friends hate you for it. And it sucks. It sucks to have to have that conversation. And it sucks to have to look at your friends and know that they're disappointed in you. So that's why I added this in is it was important to show kind of outside of the narrator and Zoe at this point. She's starting to broaden her horizons again. So remember we had friends at the beginning and then they disappeared. That tends to happen in very intense relationships. And so now that the relationship is ending, she's broadening back out into friends. Okay. Oh, that was the last one. All righty. So that has been revision in practicum. I hope that you enjoyed it. Um, feel free to go back. Feel free to listen a second time. It's a lot. 
like I said, if you want to see the visual component, because I have all of this written out and color coded, I will link the YouTube video below where you can see everything. Because I know I'm a visual learner. If you are too, then feel free to go there. Um, as you are editing, remember, it's a process. This is not going to happen overnight. This story certainly did not happen overnight. Um, I think this story went through four or five drafts before it got to the final one. So don't think that your story needs to be perfect, amazing, exactly like you want it the second you start typing. There's a journey that happens. Always remember polishing, not perfection. Um, and my advice is when you are going through and polishing, choose one or two things to look for. So as I was doing my drafts, I would think, okay, where are her friends? Are her friends where they need to be? Is there anywhere I can add her friends? Is there anywhere I can take her friends out? It was usually adding in friends. And so I would do that. And then that would be the next draft. And then I would say, okay, the narrator is a little too angry at Zoe. She needs to be angry at herself. How can I go back through and make that happen? So choose one or two things to look for whenever you're editing. Don't try to edit for every single thing that you had an idea for. And then lastly, share. A lot of these edits, a lot of these ideas came from other people looking at this story and saying, I, I don't know, I think the narrator is a little too mad at herself. And then a light bulb went off in my head and I went, oh, yeah, no, no, I totally get that. So, um, yeah, sharing is a good thing as long as you trust the person you're sharing with. And, of course, you can always share here. You can share, um, send an email to writeturn at gmail.com and I would be super happy to take a look at anything that you're working on. So that concludes our editing and practicum. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for coming along on this journey with me. I hope this talk was helpful to you. Um, share it with anybody you think would be interested in watching an editing process or learning more about the editing process. Otherwise, I will see you guys next time. I hope you have a great day. And if it's not a good one, I hope that the next one is better. See you next time.